Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my delight to welcome you here. And on this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then, of course, we ask them to read one of their own poems. And my guest today is Maureen N. McLean, whose poems, I'm delighted to be able to say, have been appearing in the magazine since 2008. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you so much, Paul, and thank you for the invitation. So you chose a poem by Liz Waldner. It's a poem called The Sovereignty and the Goodness of God, together with the faithfulness of his promises displayed. Quite a long title, uh, though not the longest uh, we've ever seen. (laughs) And it was published in the magazine in 2009. Now, do you remember reading it, uh, seeing it in the magazine? This is interesting. I actually didn't see it on its first appearance. But when I was going through the archives, and I also have many back issues, and that's a deferred pleasure, and I, I came across this poem, and it really arrested me. I ultimately chose it among so many wonderful things to, to read and think about because I was just so struck by this poem, and it gave me good pause. What is it, in essence, do you think, that makes this poem so effective? Oh, for me, there were a number of things chiming right away. First of all, the title and that kind of great biblical cadence that's being evoked. And I knew I had this dim feeling that I'd come across this title before and I couldn't remember, was it from a sermon? Was it from, you know, what was it from? And then I realized that it was from a 17th century captivity narrative, Mary Rowlandson, a kind of English Puritan in North America and Massachusetts, a captivity narrative I read some 20 years ago, and and that cadence came back to me. So first there was that very arresting title with, with a language out of our own moment, and yet the poem itself largely moves along a, a very contemporary and accessible idiom, but everywhere tinged with a kind of primary, almost biblical commitment as it begins. You know, let's hear it, in fact. Uh, Would you mind reading it for us? No, I'd be delighted. The sovereignty and the goodness of God, together with the faithfulness of his promises displayed, by Liz Waldner. In the beginning, there was a meanness, and it spread. Perhaps I absorbed it, so that whatever I saw was filtered through the meanness I don't mean stingy, stinginess, as do British novelists, by the way. Although a lacking generosity, the ability to will that there be someone other than oneself was certainly a kind of cause. In the beginning, then, it was willed that I not be. This shamed me, however good an act I learned to put on. And now it is fifty years later. I have a profound interest in freedom, I notice, and an urgent sense of little time. Little time, near little getting. I ween can reckon have on the British women novelists I have loved. I have to mean their novels, of course. Queen of the Tambourine, The Vacillations of Poppy Carew, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. 
Behold how the outcast makes good. Time is a word. Love is a word. Between them are words, and between them an entrance. I pray to be entranced, starting right now again I do. I am old enough to understand being willing to go on is a great gift. There's an extraordinary resignation about it. Uh, I am old enough to understand being willing to go on uh, is a great gift. I mean, it's the resignation that we see, uh, and indeed there's something of the vocabulary there, perhaps even a direct quote from the uh, Beckettian Hmm, world picture. For me, that tension is distilled in, in the word willing. I'm old enough to understand being willing to go on, not simply going on is a great gift, that one is assenting to endurance. And that seems to me a difficult and maybe constrained chastening, but also a peculiar kind of affirmation, which actually seems to me more affirmative than Beckett. Well, that's right. The The willing is really, a, and its position in the line, of course, just as the line comes around the corner, yes. being willing to go on. But it includes the notion of the will as in the will to live. But it's also sort of, again, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll go on. I guess I accept that I'll (laughs) go on. This is, again, a strange uh, tension between these two ideas. Well, within the poem, too, we've already had will in our ears because it says about, let's say, a third of the way through the poem, in the beginning then, it was willed that I not be. So I think this poem gives us a trajectory whereby the capacity to will oneself to go on is an extraordinary achievement and a deeply (laughs) non-banal achievement and one of self-care. There's an interesting navigation, too, in terms of this speaker's becoming of herself partly through reading and through affinities. And, And the way this poem seems to stage its affinities is through British women novelists and also the strange and wonderful trajectories in varieties of English. And that was another thing that immediately, from the biblical rhetoric of the the title and its opening cadences to this worrying over the term meanness, stinginess. Uh, I don't mean that precisely, and yet I do mean that because meanness will now carry for us all of those resonances if we start thinking hard about the resonances of words across the Atlantic. Well, it's almost as if every word in the poem, whether it belongs to one side of the Atlantic or the other, is going in two directions. And mean, means being one of them. Means in the sense of signification and means in the sense of being slightly uh, stingy, as we heard. Now, Maureen, let's move on to your own poem. And last summer, in uh, the August 12th and 19th, 2013, double issue. That was the double issue. That's why I give you the two dates there, (laughs) lest you be confused. (laughs) The New Yorker published uh, a poem called Mesh. Now, before you read it for us, is there anything that you might like to say about it that would be useful for listeners? Yes, I guess both the title and the arrival of the poem are distilled in the word mesh. And for me, that became... A wonderful concept, partly that I had was probably in the air, but also I had actually encountered most recently through a writer on ecology, Timothy Morton, who writes a lot about the interpenetration of species, the inanimate world, rocks, mineral, vegetable, and some of these new thinkers in environmental strains who want to even move beyond 
a criticism of speciesism or separating humans from animals uh, to an even further sense that the animate and the inanimate are profoundly enmeshed, profoundly interdependent, and any actually thorough reckoning with, with ecology and futurities should register that, and then we make a big mistake by conceptually dividing the universe. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So let's uh, hear the poem, Mesh, if we may. Everything in the world has a name if you know it. You know that. The fungus secreting itself from the bark is Colt's hoof. The dignity of catalogers bows before code. The thing about elements, they don't want to be split. Every time I collide with your mind, I give off, something happens, we don't know what. Particles, articles, this bit, a bit, digital, simple, fission, fusion, a great vowel shift. I saw the world dissolve in waves, the trees as one with the sun and their shadows. The trees on the shore, the trees in the pond, branch in the mind. The screech of the subway decelerating its knife into the brain of all riders. In the morning, the hummingbird. In the evening, five deer. Why should I feel bad about beauty? The postmodernists are all rational and sad, though they mug in zany gear. Everyone knows what is happening. They disagree why and what then. It turns out the world was made for us to mesh. Mesh read there by Maureen N. McLean. Now, I'm struck by the 
two lines in the middle of that poem. In the morning, the hummingbird. In the evening, five deer. And for some reason, I went back to a memory of uh, the work of William Carlos Williams as I read that. Was, is Williams an influence on you? I, mean, I had never really thought of his being an influence on you until I heard you read that just a moment ago. Uh, somehow with the, the, on one hand, the musing, slightly abstract, and then in the midst of it all, this detail of the ordinary world. I think Williams is a big presence in my mind. I think Williams's attention to detail and specificity and that the no ideas but in things dictum that he had, that anything in the world was an adequate, quote, symbol for anything you might think. And, and beyond his, his thinking about poetics, just just the poems and that incredible respect and atten- for and attention to whatever might pass across the surface of your mind or the windshield of your car or the turnpike in New Jersey, I think that there's something about that combination of perceptual acuity and the sense that that would suffice that I find very appealing. I love that definition uh, by Dr. Johnson of a net as being a number of holes held together by string. Fantastic. I wanted to ask something along those lines. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, on the subject of the whole, as it were, H-O-L-E, as you're embarking on a poem, is there anything that you are feel obliged to leave out? Is there anything you don't want to do in a poem? It's a slightly perverse question, but sure. It is. It's a wonderfully perverse question. Here we are. I might as well ask you. (laughs) I don't know that I would say this is about deciding to leave out, but I would say that a disposition I have is not to explain, but to offer. And I feel that I want to trust in the language to carry whatever sounds and ideas it might carry and not explicate. And so I feel that that's not a active deletion, but it's a stance about what suffices or what I hope suffices as an offering in a poem. So I'm a person who tends not to offer a lot of notes to poems, for example. Well, can I ask you perhaps a related question? Is there, as you embark on writing a poem, is there anything that you definitely want to put in? Is there something that you feel absolutely determined to do in the poem, insofar as you have any say in that, and of course our say in that is modified, but insofar as we have any say, and in your case, insofar as you have any say, what is it that you want to do in a poem? Well, this is maybe a perverse answer, but one thing I want to do is not to will a poem. What I want is to follow a trace, follow a sound, follow a rhythm, follow a phrase. And I want to follow its possible implications, its possible trajectories. But in fact, I'm a very, very unprogrammatic writer. And that, I'm sure, leads to all kinds of tendencies in my poems. But because with a poem like Mesh, I tend to be following uh, movements of thought and sound. If anything, I have a huge aversion to will as an element in composition. So it's very hard for me almost to say to you, 
oh, I want to do X in this poem. One thing I would like to do in this or in any poem is to transmit whatever neurological experience I'm having in the writing of the poem to you. So I, I believe in that. I believe, I mean, that's the whole point. If that weren't happening, there's no point in this. So, I mean, I could say something about the one significant arrival and revision I made in this poem, which was its last line. I mm-hmm. had a draft in this poem that was largely this poem, as, as appears in The New Yorker. And the way I had the final stanza, it turns out the world was made for us to make. And the more I thought about it, it goes right to this question of will, I think, Paul. The more I thought about it, I had an argument with myself. And no, it's not. And that sense of mesh is both noun and verb and is a kind of awkwardly transitive verb ending this poem was precisely that slightly off kilter that seemed to me such the right thing for this poem. That's a long digressive answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great answer, though. And thank you so much for that answer and for your other answers today, Maureen Ann McLean. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, you know, I realized in thinking about both our conversation and Liz's poem in particular, there was one thing I really did want to say about Liz's poem, and that was that there's an extraordinary moment later in the poem where there's a movement where she starts talking about words. Time is a word. Love is a word. And we get these reflections on the very material of the poem. And she says, between them are words and between them an entrance. I pray to be entranced. And I felt that to me was a perfect distillation of the offer and the the wager of this poem. Poems as entrances that might entrance you novels as, you know, possibly entrancing things. And I loved that kind of sonic play that had huge cognitive ramifications in this poem. The sovereignty and the goodness of God, together with the faithfulness of his promises displayed by Liz Waldner, as well as Maureen N. McLean's poem, Mesh, may be found on the New Yorker's website. And Liz Waldner's latest book of poems is Play, Maureen N. McLean's most recent collection is This Blue. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts on the iTunes Store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the magazine's app for tablets and smartphones. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.